0: Well, hello there. I went to New York City last week and I have several experiences from that trip that I want to share with you. I think they're interesting. Then plus some listener submission submissions on some biblical questions and a very interesting healthcare story. We'll do that and more on this week's Cory Track show. This is the best thing. The best thing that could be Yes, indeed. The Big a- the big Apple is what I was trying to say. The concrete jungle, as it were. New York City, I, it's my favorite city in the world. The, the Lord has been good to me in that I've been able to see a lot of the world. I've been spoiled in that way. And of all of the places I've been, there's just nothing like New York City. I know that's not the speed for some of you. Not, your, not, not the uh, context you like to spend time in, but I just love it. I try to go at least once a year. I had some business up there that I was able to go take part. Take part in at the King's College, uh, Christian College up there in New York City. It was a good time, and so I want to share some of the stories with you, even in- including some things I saw on the on the flight there and back. So we'll get into that. Plus, we have uh, some apologetic issues, some things about the Bible. People have questions on that I want to discuss. I, I got a lot to do. Plus, um, one of your fellow listeners and uh, good friend sent me a story on healthcare in Taiwan that I think is a really fair treatment about how they do single-payer. Uh, there's, there's pluses and minuses, there's benefits and there's costs, and I, I want to walk through a lot of that today. That'll probably be a big chunk of the show. Before we do any of that, my name is Corey Truax, and we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk here on The Corey Truax Show. I'm also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church, and Beachwood, Beachwood meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville, South Carolina, and you are invited any given Sunday morning to come see us at Beachwood Church. Here's where I want to begin. I took a day, it was about five hours in totality, and spent those five hours in the the American Museum of Natural History. I went to another museum that day, just about the history of New York City, but the, the biggest chunk of my day was in the Museum of Natural History. You might recall that museum from the movie that Ben Stiller did. I forgot the name of the movie, but at night, when he's like the, the night security guard in the movie at the museum, the museum stuff comes alive, and you can, it's, it's, it's fun. Right? It's a Ben Stiller movie. And so uh, I went to that museum, so that's where they have all the fossils. You get to see big dinosaurs, or at least the bones thereof. And then there is a narrative they set up where you get what, what they would just call the narrative of evolution. The, the The museum at large, in a lot of ways, at least, maybe half of it, maybe a little less, is just one really sophisticated, well-illustrated argument for evolution, like Darwin's theory. You know, There's parts of it that have to do with outer space, and some of it's just like the North American continent and tracing the development of the North American continent over time and what species live where. And it was actually really well done, and obviously it's going to be well done, right? It's the American Museum of Natural History on the Upper West Side of Manhattan with endless funds and the ability to put together these exhibits, and it, it really was incredible. I, I love the intellectual endeavor, the endeavor that is a museum, and a museum of that level was incredible. There's a couple thoughts I had from that museum. So first, they are fairly open with some of the early language on the walls and on the displays and even the, the literature you get that they're, they're trying to explain evolution, Darwin's theory, in an accessible way. So you have to assume a couple things. That if any museum, any set of people, are going to be well-equipped to make a compelling argument that Darwin's theory of evolution is absolutely the truth, can be not, can't be questioned, and has all the evidence in the world, if there's any group of people, you would assume it's going to be the folks at the Museum of Natural History in New York City. They have all the funds in the world. They have all of the opportunity to put together a really compelling case. And so I go through this museum, and I'm just I'm blown away of what they have. And I I just remember having this thought eventually. I got to this really cool exhibit about horses. It it had to be 30 feet long. And what they trace with actual bones that they have found, like this was not just recreations, but actual fossils. They are able to trace the earliest horses, the size that they were and how their hooves looked and the sizes of of their heads, and then to trace over time how horses have changed, gotten bigger, how in certain climates different things changed. And it really was mind-blowing. It was really mind-blowing to see the fairly vast variation that can happen in horses over relatively small periods of time. And I got to the end of that 30 feet, and, was like, and just thought, man, that's incredible. Like this this evolution argument. And, and then I stopped and I looked back at the first fossil, the smaller horse, and I looked back at where I was at the end and thought, but that's still a horse. That horse down there is a little different. This whor- horse up here is different than that one. But they're all just Horses. And I thought, and this is the thought I actually had. I had this thought: well, maybe I'm just stupid. Like here, you're making me this argument for evolution, and I am here seeing it, this really compelling, well done argument. And my reaction is, I, I, I'm not convinced. Like you're not making a great argument. I, I don't. This is not. This has not been compelling to me. And then it gets. It makes me think. Well, if it's not compelling to me, that's probably a problem with me, because the people who set up these museums and think all this stuff—they're all smarter than I am, right? Like, they're all higher educated. They're all got probably a better SAT. Although my SAT wasn't that bad, like they're probably all smarter than I am. But I just got to admit, I went through this entire museum, this this very well illustrated argument for the idea of Darwinian evolution, and came away. Utterly unconvinced. And I think I'm even easy to convince. I've made you a lot of you uncomfortable in that I am I am not by nature I don't think the I don't think the biblical text demands of us to believe the earth is ten thousand years old or less or the universe is six whatever people say, eight thousand, whatever it is years old. I don't believe that that's even a demand on me. So I'm I'm even easy to convince. I don't come in with a biblical bias that would say this has to be wrong. I'm just telling you my actual logic went and saw it all and went, I I don't think so. I don't think you've got this, at least across species. Because all, here's all they did over and over again. They proved to me over and over again that different types of felines became other types of felines and canines became canines. And over and over again, they kept doing that. And I was very convinced that adaptations and if that's where the way we're using the word evolution if that's all it means if evolution just means variations inside of a type, then I guess I'm an evolutionist but I thought evolution was supposed to be common ancestry all of us coming from generally the same place and then we come we, we actually do breakthrough like an ape and a human they are different. They're fundamentally different. One doesn't evolve into the other. they're they're, they're fundamentally different things. And so they made it. They made their argument, and I came away going, "Nah, I don't think you got that." A couple other thoughts from that museum. There was a lot of qualifying language. Like th- there was never language on these displays about what we know and what we're sure of, sure of. It was all about what was surmised and theorized. And I, I respected that. I respected that they're not just saying, "Here's what we know," because they don't know. It's 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 a lot of theory when it comes to evolution. And then. I also found this to be surprising. Yeah, that's the word. I'll just go with surprising. They would give you diagrams on these dinosaur fossils of which fossils were real and which ones were just created in, a, in the back room with some art. And it was amazing to me the amount of fossils they have where they have this, this, uh, this triceratops made of hundreds of bones, but maybe 25 or 50 are actual bones. And then they, best guess, put it together. Made a bunch of other bones and said, maybe it looked like this. Maybe it fit together like this. And so there, there does seem to be a lot of conjecture and guesswork on that as well. But again, I do, I do love the transparency that I can now look at this fossil of this giant dinosaur thing, and they'll tell me, well, actually only one-third of this are bones that people have found. The rest of this is what we have filled in and we think is there. So that was, uh, last thought on that. Uh, the, the other part. Okay, so that was the part that was about biology and evolution, and then I went into the part that I love the most, which is cosmology and what they did on space, because I love space. I love Star Trek and Star Wars, and I love Elon Musk from SpaceX, and I need him to figure this out because I need to go to space before I'm do- before I'm dead. I love space, and I went into their twenty minute presentation inside this incredible planetarium. I mean, again. You have to assume it's it's above Disney level type planetarium. It'll blow your mind what they can do with effects in the heart of Upper West Side of Manhattan. And uh, it was voiceover was Neil deGrasse Tyson, and it really was inspiring. It was beautiful the the way in which they could make you understand how small we are of thousands of galaxies that we are just this one, and we're not even that impressive of a galaxy. And then. Uh, even our our sun, is powerful and as big as it is, that it's not even really that big of a deal of a sun when you look at other the other parts of the world that we can understand. They even made the argument in there for a Big Bang Theory. And so I had two thoughts from it. One was, I, I have generally been favorable towards the Big Bang Theory for this reason. The, because the way we, we measure Big Bang Theory is we measure the radiation coming off of things, and that the fact basically the fact that the universe is expanding, and we can witness it expanding. We can see the universe getting bigger. And so that leads to this logical syllogism. If the universe is bigger right now than it was an hour ago, then it's bigger right now than it was 10,000 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, or whatever. And so if you could put the universe, the, the, the collection of all things, as if it were a video, put it on reverse... Then it goes backwards, 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 backwards backwards into something smaller, 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 smaller into eventually it would be either nothing or something super small. The issue with it being super small, like with on the actual show, Big Bang Theory, the the comedy, the opening song is the whole universe was in a hot, dense state. Then 14 billion years ago, expansion started. Uh, So... But, but what we know about the universe is that it expands. There, there is no property of the universe that would, that would state that it stays in stasis. It does not sit in a hot, dense state. All we know it's ever done is expand. Which means the logic would be, if all the universe does is expand, if we roll the tape back all the way to the beginning, there wasn't a hot, dense state. There was nothing. Nothing was there. And then ex nihilo, out of nothing, God speaks and all matter and all of the universe is spoken into existence. And so they make the argument for the Big Bang Theory really well in there, and I I was blown away by God, the, the idea of there being nothing and him speaking all things into existence. And the final thought I had from the planetarium part was this. When you recognize we are on a tiny little planet in an ultimately insignificant galaxy in an utterly infinite universe... And then you go to Psalm, I think it's 19, and the psalmist writes, What is man that you are mindful of him? If I remember this correctly, Psalm 19 is actually a reflection on Genesis 1. So David writing Psalm 19, he's thinking about the beginning of Genesis and him reading Genesis, and he starts thinking about that story and writes, you have the, the, the mountains and the oceans and the planets and the sun and the stars, and you have all this incredible creation. What, what is man that you're mindful of him? And that should be a humbling note for us. What is man that God is mindful of us, that he would have a, a way of redemption to bring us back into relationship with himself, that he would reconcile mankind to this glorious God, the maker of all things? So that was my trip to the Natural History Museum. When I come back, I want to give you one more thought from that trip, and then we're going to get into lots of other fun stuff. So stick with us for the rest of the Corey True Show. <music> Welcome back to the Corey True Show. Thank you for sticking with me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. You can find me, and I hope you will follow along. One of the things I do out there on Instagram, mostly, but also some on Facebook, is I have, I guess I've learned the piano. I I never know when to say, yes, I play piano, because I'm not good. I can play chords on my right hand. I can do a little bit of work on my left. And so, like, when someone says, hey, do you play any instruments? I don't know if I can, I don't know if I'm qualified yet to say, yes. But I do play a lot out there on social, and so that's fun if you want to follow along. Maybe even send us like a song suggestion. That would be a good time. All right, so I was reviewing for you my trip to New York City last week, and I wanted to give you one more thought that's totally unrelated to the spiritual and Christian implications, because that's where I started. On my way back, a flight from Newark to D.C. and then D.C. to GSP, there was a copy of The Economist in the seat back in front of me on the flight from Newark to Washington, D.C., And I was just flipping through The Economist just to see what was in there. And I saw a headline so indicative of the problem we have politically with our mindset. The article was about the the president, President Trump. uh, What was was his name? Soleimani? Killing Soleimani? Having the drone strike on Soleimani. the uh, Iranian commander, general, person, basically like second in command in Iran and the, the title was so perfect. So you, you have this action that the president took. It's kind of complicated. It was in Iraq with a guy who was, he, he kind of muddies the, ro- Sole- Soleimani muddies the waters because he's a government official in Iran, but he is also running terrorist organizations. So terrorist organizations are stateless. They don't have a uniform to wear of a country. They're not they don't have that kind of hierarchy. They aren't part of the UN or anything. So he's yes, a government official, but he is also just as much as Osama bin Laden, a terrorist who planned things to kill Americans, who actually did kill Americans and was planning to do more. Now, but still it is complicated because he is a government official and there wasn't congressional approval or oversight of it. Like so it's complicated. And the headline in this economist article was Masterstroke or madness, question mark. So those are your options. This killing of Soleimani, it it can only either be masterstroke, incredible move, or it's madness and insanity. Or maybe, maybe there's some nuance. (laughs) Maybe the answer's somewhere in between those two. But that's what The Economist gives you. And that's what it feels like the entire culture is telling you. Every time the president does anything, you can only do one or the other. Either it's the best, most perfect thing anyone's ever done, and he's the best ever, or he's a moron and he's evil. And it's just not healthy or logical or rational. I mean, my opinion on him as a person is really clear, but the decisions, like the individual decisions... Every single one of them should be judged individually. Same thing for like a Barack Obama. I don't think particularly high of him in his character, but every individual decision needs to be judged. But, but The Economist does that thing that's very American right now. It was either a masterstroke or it's madness, and those are your choices Nothing and nothing else. Okay, so I saw that on the way back from the flight. Wanted to share that with you. Okay, to some listener submissions. This one is from, there's not a name, name at the bottom, Rick. Rick writes in. Rick says, well, how, how do I respond? And he sent me an article, uh, some, or at least a tweet, from some atheist guy who quotes a lot of Bible about how God commanded the, the Israelites to deal with the Canaanites when Israel was moving into the Promised Land. And the argument that this guy's making is, look at all this language about God being willing to destroy the Canaanites, utterly destroy them all and isn't that kind of uh, like isn't that super genocide? Like isn't God being really genocide over there? So a couple ways to think through this that I think are important for the Christian if you get this challenge. When God gives commands for the destruction of a people, how do we respond to that? Well, one if you know enough about the Canaanite culture, I would challenge this atheist. How dare you not destroy them? If you were God and you let these folks live, you, 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 I think you would call God unjust for letting them be. What we know of the Canaanites was that they they were killing their children, they were enslaving each other, they were they were an incredibly violent people at large. The the folks that we know of in that near near east ancient world <clears throat> the sexual depravity that i don't even want to get into of what they had going there so this there's this idea here that even some of the other prophets minor prophets will talk about that the that the the, the sin of a people hasn't been full enough yet for god to be willing to destroy them and so you get this idea that God is actually really long suffering. He's very patient. He's waiting for people's to behave themselves, to repent, to live to live in a way that shows regard and respect for the image of God on every person. And eventually what God does is justice. He does justice against the people of Canaan. By the way, he did a lot of justice to the people of Israel as well in some in punishing them. So that's one. If you if you had an actual idea of who the Canaanites were, you would be actually not be criticizing God for wanting them destroyed. You'd be criticizing God for not destroying them sooner, because he was very merciful and long-suffering with them. But secondarily, if you actually read the passages, as very few people do, you'll get many stories, mostly Chronicles, maybe some in Kings, where Israel goes to battle with some group in the Promised Land or... Uh, some neighboring tribe, and you'll get some language about how, and they utterly destroyed, utterly destroyed this other army or something, and then like a couple chapters later, that same people group is mentioned again, because that's often how Near Eastern language worked. Like you use some hyperbole, and and this army utterly annihilated the entire the entire people of the Ammonites, and two chapters later, and the Ammonites, you know, they did this thing. Well, apparently they weren't all annihilated. Because they're still there. So, when people do the, God, what did these people destroy, these, Can- these Canaanite peoples? Well, very evil peoples that deserved judgment. And number two, uh, to, I mean, to the extent that I would say to most skeptics of the scripture, you would destroy them too. You would have destroyed those peoples for considering what they were into, into the violence and sexual deviancy that they were doing. And then, second, often the language there is used in hyperbole, and you'll, you will you can actually see in the text that those peoples were not annihilated. And then, second, I got, got into a personal discussion regarding the seminal question in apologetics. I've said on the show several times that the hardest question for the believer is the question of theodicy. That's the technical term, but the, the layman's term is, why do bad things happen? Why... Do tra- tragic things take place? I-, I think there's a couple of different answers to that, but I-, I got into a personal discussion on this, and I, I wanted to give you a an answer that I gave to this person. That I don't know that was effective, but I think it should be. I think if our if we dwell on these things properly, that this would be an effective way to think about it. So, one why why do bad why do bad things happen? How do we think about them? There's two categories there. One is man-made in totality. Like when someone hurts you, when there's a personal slight or a, a personal offense some, to, to the most serious things, well, th- a person did that, that's who you should blame. The person who did the violent thing, the deviant thing, the terrible thing, you should blame them. Why did that bad thing happen? Because that bad person did it. That's the reason. But then sometimes it's other things. you know, A hurricane, no one did. An earthquake, no one did. No one did those things. And so here is my, my best effort. At one of the ways I like to think through that. Again, admitting. I think it's important to admit. This is a question that I don't think has any really good answers. and That's really important to stop and hear me say. There's no great answer to the question of bad things, evil in the world. There's no great answer. There's good answers. There's rational and reasonable answers. There's no great answers. There, and that's that's the biggest problem for Christianity. I could give you the equal, the equally hard problems. There's there are there are problems for the for every worldview that they they're just hard to overcome and there's no really good answers from that worldview perspective. And so I'm going to give you one of mine for this. There's an there's an odd assumption from folks in this question that they seem to know what is evil and what is good. They know, that, they know that the people suffering in Nepal after an earthquake, they know that's bad. They know that this isn't a good outcome. This isn't a good thing. Now, we the Christian, we know that too. We know that this is an evil outcome. We don't like this outcome for these people. We don't like to see people suffering. The problem for the person outside the Christian worldview is they have no coherent reason to believe that it's a bad thing. So for us over here in the Christian world, we see a person suffering. We see the the suffering inflicted upon people from people and on people from nature. And we say, that person is made in the image of God. And therefore, the calamity that has befallen them is something that we wish to escape. And for the Christian, it's something we believe that there's coming a time where those calamities will end. Jesus will return. The earth is groaning for that. The earth will stop its groaning. We will stop our longing, and all things will be will be made right and new. But the only reason I even know to, that those things are bad, that I, I wish those things weren't happening, these bad things, is because I know a good thing exists. It's because I know there's coming a perfect thing, and I know people are made in the image of God, and therefore... When stuff befalls them, it's bad. For the secularist, for the person outside the faith, I don't mind saying to the secularist who tells me that it's such a bad thing that this earthquake happened in Nepal. Um, Wait, why do you know that? Why is it such a bad thing? Why are you so upset about the earthquake in Nepal? You don't have any, you, you have no good answer to that. So some bags of chemicals that you call humans, we call them humans, but all they are is a meaningless bag of chemicals that evolved from nothing. That are just They're just animals. Why do you care? Why should any of us care? It actually takes the Christian worldview, it takes the biblical worldview to actually care about the plight of people. And so while you're asking why do bad things happen, I ask you, how do you even know they're bad? The fact that you know that, Points to the fact that there is an objective standard, and that objective standard is the God of the Bible. Okay, so I had those two apologetics questions um, regarding the Canaanites and why bad things happen. And so I wanted to do those, and now onto one of my hobby horses, and this might take us close to the end of the show. That's a possibility. I had a good friend, Glenn, sent me a a story from Vice or Vox. Oh no, it's Vox. Uh, the, the, that uh, was looking into other healthcare systems in the world. And so the other healthcare systems across the planet that are universal healthcare that that's total coverage for people. They're trying to answer a very a very practical question, how do other countries do it? So the United States doesn't have this universal coverage, how are these other countries actually achieving it? And I will admit for Vox, uh, this this, this will not make me popular with conservatives. I like Vox. They are left-wing, and that, that should be noted. They are a left-wing source of news. They were started by Ezra Klein. Ezra Klein is one of the more prominent liberals on Twitter. And he started the website in a way that was a little obnoxious. He was saying, "Don't so the people need the news explained to them. So that's what we're going to do in Vox. We're not just going to report the news. We're going to explain the news to you. And it's, it's a typical liberal thing to do is assume everyone's stupid and they don't understand the news. And so you've got to have us, the smarter people, explain it to you. And so admitting, I need to admit to you, Vox is left-wing, but man, they do some good work. The same thing with Vice. I think that's why I said Vice. Vice on HBO, I think they do the best journalism in the world right now, and they are not conservative. And sometimes it's hard to tell what they are, but you can sometimes tell that they're liberal. Because I follow their journalists on Twitter and other things, I personally, they're very obvious. They're very obviously left-wingers on Vice on HBO, but in their reporting and their news... They're just so clever and so smart. And that's how I felt about this story that I read. I've, read. I've read several of them because Vox has now several stories of in-depth reporting on how other countries achieve universal healthcare coverage. Now, if you've noticed over the years on the show, this is a big hobby horse for me. I'm, I'm, I'm all about healthcare policy. I wrote one of my papers in college my senior year on healthcare policy. I am very much an opponent of single-payer systems, and I, I was a big opponent of Obamacare. I think it's really easy to be an opponent of Obamacare. It broke every promise it made. It achieved none of its out, its desired outcomes. Uh, and even, like, one of the reasons we can know that's the case, even right now, uh, does, anyone, does anyone think the healthcare system is fixed? <laughs> we spent, you know, an insane amount of money, over a trillion dollars on this thing, and it apparently benefited, like, 10 million people total. We thought at the beginning it might benefit 30 million. We were overhauling the entire system to benefit maybe $30 million. About $10 million are benefited by uh, the Obamacare total. Uh, and so, anyway, it's, this is a big hobby horse for me, and so I appreciated him sending that over. The, the Vox people went to Taiwan to take a look at a system that is fairly new, which was very intriguing to me. Va- uh, Taiwan did not go into universal health care until around the early 90s, around 1990s when they started. And so we're only dealing with about 30 years of data here, and that's really interesting to me. So it's how did they build it after having seen what the British did with the National Health Service and what the Western Europeans did? And they had a very fair look at the Taiwanese system, and I want to highlight some of those things for you. So some bright sides. Like, how did they benefit? Well, there is no question that the Taiwanese people from before they instituted single payer socialized medicine to after the Taiwanese people are living longer lives and healthier lives. So they're living longer and their, their health problems have diminished. There's no question about that. Their health outcomes are better in Taiwan right now than they were previous to 1990 and single payer without question led to longer and healthier lives. And, even, so that's, that's one metric. Like, it's better than it used to be. But then you wonder, well, what if it was just terrible in Taiwan? Who cares if it's better than it used to be? How does it compare to the rest of the world? And the answer is fairly well. It was, it was about even with most of the Western European world, about even with America in most things. We had better outcomes for some diseases. They had better outcomes for some diseases. And so they're right there with the rest of the world. With their single-payer system, they are getting... Generally, the same results from uh, from their people. So, bright sides. The, and I should also mention a third bright side: the Taiwanese people seem fairly happy with it. I mean, the polling suggests that that while they have some challenges, that generally the people of Taiwan like their single payer system. And there is something to note for that: something to note that the people are satisfied. You know, I live in a a fairly black and white world where. I tend to only care about what's right and what's wrong. I don't care if people like it or not. If people don't like it and it's right, I still want to do the right thing. And if people love something but it's wrong, well, I don't care what you like. And so uh, at least that's my internal attitude. It's probably not a good attitude to put on display. So uh, it's hard for me to say, hey, let's value their opinion of whether or not they like it. But, hey, the people of Taiwan like it. So those are things you should know. It got better how— better health health outcomes than previous. It compares favorably with the rest of the world and their people seem to like it. Now, let me give you the the downsides of this very fair report on how this works because this is part of being an adult. It's one of my big themes talking about healthcare policy is everybody's got to grow up. Every system is going to have its positives and its negatives. The American system has its negatives and its positives. The Taiwanese system has its positives and negatives. There will never be a perfect healthcare system. Another theme I've given to you over the years on this show. In a healthcare system, you can have two out of these three things. You can have low cost at the point of service. You can have excellence, or you can have access. You can have two of those three things because they pull on each other. If you have less quality healthcare, well, then it can cost less, and you can have less access to it. But if it's going to, if you're going to have a lot of access to it, and it's going to be excellent, we're going to have to cost more. Right, because there's there is no perfect world. We don't live in a room. We don't live in a world of 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 balloons and unicorns. And it's there's real life math. And so every system has to be measured in that way. What are you? What benefits are you getting, and what costs are you in, incurring? And I'm actually running up against the break. I want to stay on time. So I gave you the benefits. Those are the good things happening there in Taiwan. When we come back, I want to take a fair look at their single payer system and what the costs are against those benefits we'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act show welcome into the final segment of the Corey Act show on his radio talk 91.9 and 92.9 and that is if you were listening Saturday morning at 8.05 live thank you for listening to his radio talk 91.9 if you are listening to the podcast wherever you find fine podcasts thank you appreciate that very much and if you would share the show with others, that's always highly appreciated. So I gave you before the break the good parts. There's good things happening in single-payer healthcare in Taiwan. I wouldn't argue against that. They're living longer, healthier lives than they were previously. It compares favorably to other civilized nations, and the people seem to like it. So here is what it is costing them. It's important. Now, is in, in the same story, by the way. You can go to Vox and read the same story, you get the benefits and the cost because they did very good journalism here. And I should admit too, in journalistically, they weren't trying to hide their bias. They showed we think single payer is better and we think even the Taiwan the Taiwan system is better. I disagree with them on that, but you get really fair reporting. If you go read this story, the story out on Vox, there's also one for the Netherlands, you can read all these other systems of healthcare. All right, so they had their benefits, here's the costs. There were definitely still some copays, which I'd be okay with. I actually like that. That they that there were some people that in the store that didn't like that they still had to pay something. Like they would go to the doctor and they you still have to pay some twelve dollars, fifteen dollars, or something. So there were still copays. People were actually paying uh, for some of their care. Two, there there definitely were higher taxes. We're talking appreciably higher taxes in Taiwan. First on things like income. Also a VAT, uh, value-added tax. But then, here was one that gets me, uh, that got me hard, uh, that was very difficult to deal with. Our payroll tax for our healthcare system, Medicare. So, Medicare that covers just old people. Old, I shouldn't say that, because they're not old anymore. 65 is not old anymore. Like, people are living for like a long time. So, for our seasoned citizens our payroll tax rate i think is 1.5%. So 1.5%, i think we pay that the, the employee pays part and the employer pays another 1.5%. I think it's how it works. But their payroll tax was 5.17%. So consider that, like not just higher income taxes and not just higher uh, like sales taxes nationally, but your payroll tax right out of that check of yours. It goes right into that medical system. and so That has to be brought up. You will have less money in your pocket when you have a a nationalized system like that. Uh, three, the third thing I wanted to bring up in the system, private insurance actually still exists there, I learned in the story. So everyone has this minimum coverage from the government that is expansive. It's a lot of coverage. But the wealthier people in Taiwan can still go and get private insurance if they want to do that. The Medicare for All, Bernie Sanders version, that is not okay anymore. It is illegal. It actually destroys, it disbands the insurance companies. There's no such thing as private health insurance anymore. Taiwan didn't do that. So you can still go get private health insurance if you want it. Number four, I I learned from the story, is that not everything is covered. So it's, it's a lot of coverage, but there are things that don't get covered after a certain dollar amount, certain diseases aren't covered. Now, granted, let's be fair, that happens now in the private systems, right? There are insurance companies that will tell you we're not covering that. We're not covering that disease. Uh, this, this cost from this hospital was too much. We are not covering that. We, we've heard the horror stories of people getting those bills in the mail because an insurance company didn't cover it. My argument would be I would rather deal with private companies in those negotiations than a government in those negotiations. So right now, there are, insurance, there are insurance companies that will tell you no on certain things that you want to get covered and treated. And in Taiwan, it's just the government tells you that instead. Instead of a private company, it's just the government doing it. The, the, the thing is, you can only have one government. <laughs> With insurance companies, at least there's some competition. Like, we don't have competition here as like we should. There should be a lot more competition in the insurance market. It's one of our biggest problems in our medical system is the lack of competition amongst medical insurers and so uh, I say not everything is covered in Taiwan. Well, that's true here. Insurance companies deny coverage. I would just rather an insurance company do it than the government do it because I can at least compete with other insurance companies. Number five, I think on my list, I learned in this uh, this article, their healthcare consumption is much higher. That shouldn't surprise you. So if you, if you know, you can go to a doctor and pay your, I think the copay is $12 for a general practitioner's visit. The then you're going to go more often, right? Because we know if your insurance doesn't cover, uh, or you have like a high deductible, and that visit to the doctor is going to cost you 70 bucks, well, maybe you don't go. It's a deterrent. But if you're in Taiwan, it's only going to be 12 bucks. Then you go to the doctor for a lot of stuff. So, for example, the average Taiwanese person, they go to the doctor 12.1 times a year, so w- more than once a month they're going to the doctor, where for an American, it's, it's about three times a year they go to a doctor. One of the doctors they interviewed in Taiwan said uh, that they're on the brink. Doctors are overworked. The funny quote was, we are not the Avengers. <laughs> he was saying they're not superheroes. And so they, they have this problem where fewer people are becoming doctors and more people are dropping out of being doctors. So in America, we have 3.3 doctors per every 1,000 people, which, by the way, it's not enough. We need more. But 3.3 doctors per 1,000 people. In Taiwan, it's 1.7 doctors per 1,000 people. This is actually something I covered in depth in my that paper I wrote senior year of college uh, in Canada. Because when Canada put together its nationalized system, one of their big issues was uh, the, their system. I think they discontinued this part of the system, by the way. But One of the original things they wrote into the law is there was a cap on how much money you could earn as a doctor. So once you've earned this much, you are done earning that year. You can't earn any more. And so they were having the problem where doctors would earn that amount in seven months, in eight months, and they would just take the rest of the year off. They earned enough to just go sit by the beach. And that's what caused a lot of Canada's biggest problems with wait times because they didn't have enough doctors. And so Taiwan has that problem too, and, and we would have it. I think this is an important point. There is a large amount of people who get into medicine – out of the goodness of their heart. That's true. There's a lot of people that do that. They want to serve their community and serve others. A lot of people get into it because the money is awesome. Remember uh, what I do in my day job? I deal with college students. And I've had some very frank conversations with very high-achieving young men, specifically it's the men I remember talking to who were trying to decide between getting into finance and investment or getting into medicine, and their only question was where can i make more money that's all they wanted to know where's like where can i earn more and you're going to have a lot of those people a lot of the people that become doctors become doctors because the money is good and they're doctors because they're smart they have a lot of abilities and if you start limiting the amount of money they can make well they're going to they're they're going to switch out and that's what happened in taiwan what happened was this the, the work is too hard the the pay is not enough for what the government is paying us i'm going to go do something else i'm going to go get into investing or something else So that's a consequence that has to be thought through when you're putting in some kind of single-payer Medicare for all. And then, last thing I remember learning from the doctors in the story was they average working 10 hours more per week than an American doctor. So however many hours the average doctor works in America, it's 10 more for them. So they're earning less, working more, and so it should not surprise us that fewer people are becoming doctors and quitting as doctors in Taiwan and therefore people are getting less access to doctors. Again, they're getting better health outcomes overall. They seem to like it, but there are consequences to that action. Uh, a couple other things. Actually, yeah, maybe only one or two left. So the, it's been hard on doctors, so it's hurt the system, and then patients are starting to suffer in some ways as, as well, but maybe it's not unique to single-payer. Uh, example here, they gave an example of a a, a drug that treats some kind of not muscular dystrophy, but some kind of muscular atrophy. And it's so expensive. The drug is so expensive. They actually said the full dosage that you would need over a period of time is $750,000. That That's not covered. It's not covered by the Taiwanese insurance. There was a big publicity push when one woman was appealing to the government to pay for it and they wouldn't do it. So there's that's part of it, right? So you can't get coverage for those very high-end things. And then on average... Taiwan gets drugs 5 years after America and then Western Europe. This is an this is an important point. One of the great ex, the great parts of the American system that the rest of the world benefits from is we're the ones creating all the drugs. We're the ones creating all the treatments. And the reason it's America creating all the drugs and the treatments is two reasons. One is our more highly educated population, and two, profit motive. Yeah, there's no doubt Pfizer, and I can't think of any other pharmaceutical companies right now, but there's no question Pfizer is not out to help anybody. Pfizer's out to make money. But you know what that causes them to do? Create drugs to help us, make us healthier. Their profit motive leads to us getting medicines that we otherwise wouldn't have. And so Taiwan is five years behind. And when you say, "Well, it's just five years," well, ask someone who has a a, a disease that's going to kill them in three years if it matters if the drug comes in five years later. And so the the, the patients suffering that way. The patients are suffering. I mean, stuff I mentioned earlier. They are suffering with higher taxes, uh, so with less money in their pocket. They suffer by having less access to doctors because there's just fewer of them. But their high cost treatments are not covered and they get their drugs delayed. And then I almost don't even want to mention this one because it's not fair. There was a part of the story that detailed the problem in rural areas, that people that live in rural Taiwan have very little access to doctors because doctors don't live out there, they live in the cities, and because fewer people are becoming doctors, it's it's a problem that the, the folks out in the countryside can't get access to medical care. I say it's not fair to bring up because... That's actually one of the biggest problems in the United States. We have a major problem with rural people getting health care. And it's not because of the bad coverage or not of the insurance part. It's literally because the closest general practitioner is 15, 20, 30 miles away. Certain specialists they need are 50, 60, 70 miles away. And I noticed that. I noticed this in this way. I don't do this anymore, but back in my earlier higher education days, I recruited students in very rural areas. So you would find me not in Florence County in South Carolina, which is still a small county, but up in Dillon County or Marlboro County, maybe even down into the the places in between Sumter and Florence. And it hit me one day, I'm like 70 miles from a hospital. What do these people do? And then I... I was just riding around, and I recognized, forget about a hospital. When was the last time I saw a dentist's office? The last time I saw a general practitioner's office? And so we have that problem big time in the United States. So the fact that our our system is not actually capitalist, our healthcare system isn't capitalist at all. It would be better. Our healthcare system would be appreciably better if it would include more free market principles in it. But even in the system that we have here, it's a hybrid between... Socialism and capitalism—we're not serving rural people well. It's actually kind of a big problem for us. Um, okay, so you know, I should maybe give you some of my healthcare thought solutions. One of the things I would love to do in healthcare to make ours better is start to diminish the qualification requirement for certain things. So uh, you can, you know, nurse practitioners can write prescriptions, right? Uh, I think so can. Physicians Assistance, I think that's the title. Physicians Assistance. But like we, we need more than that. Like we, we need to expand the amount of people who can prescribe and then and fill those drugs. We we have a credentialist system and that's good. We're trying to be very careful about who can administer healthcare to people. But if we will expand some of the responsibilities that only doctors can do now, if we'll give more of those responsibilities to nurses and nurse practitioners and give them the right to do it and the training to do it then people are going to have more access, and then again, you can have more competition. That's the number one way to fix our healthcare system. I I said to her recently that one of the bigger problems with education is we haven't rethought it enough. We've not rethought how we do education. Medicine's a little bit the same, but our biggest problem is that we don't let people compete. Competition would, would, would fix a lot of that. I'll give you just one example of this, and we're almost out of time for the show. A while back when I wanted to get my wisdom teeth out, I I had to call a bunch of places and find out how much it was because you don't post it on the website. All they post on the website is, here's the insurance companies we work with. Well, how do I actually know my cost? Why is getting the price so hard? Like we we work, you, this doctor, got with an association of doctors. Your association negotiated with an insurance company, which negotiated with an insurance company adjuster or commissioner in a state about all the different reimbursement rates we got a bunch of people involved when all I really want to do is talk to a dentist who can cut the wisdom teeth out of my mouth can i just deal with a dentist one on one and that would include that that would start to uh, increase our level of competition and that level of competition would help us to get price our prices down because you, what's what's nuts with us is just how much we spend the rest of the world spends a lot less of their gdp on healthcare Our prices are out of control, and that's the thing we need to address. You can actually use an example of this in LASIK. LASIK eye surgery is still expensive, but it's gone from $10,000 per eye to $2,000 per eye to, in some places, $1,000 per eye over the last, I think it's 10, 10 to 15 years. And the reason for that is it's never covered. There's no insurance companies that cover it. This one actually is competition. It actually is the capitalist system. LASIK eye surgery is an example of what would happen if we would actually let capitalism roll, free markets roll in the healthcare system. Because with LASIK, you actually see the advertisements. Here's how much it costs here, and here's how much it costs here. and They offer different kinds of plans. Like They come up with ways to be affordable to their customers because they're not dealing with any insurance companies, and there's no insurance commissioners. We're not dealing with hospital associations and doctor's associations. We're just dealing with the patient. And that would be how we could go about maybe fixing some of our healthcare system. Thank you to Glenn for sending in that story. They're really interesting out on Vox. I highly encourage everybody to go read those uh, because they they treat you like adults. They treat you like an adult as the reader. We are all out of time for this week. Heath will be back next week. We'll get into some uh, national championship game and Super Bowl and all that. Until next time, everybody, peace and love.